Wait, are you... <laughs> are you gonna count me in? Whatever. I'm just gonna go for it. Welcome to the Queen's Lead Podcast. I'm your host, Amy Singleton. And as a child of the 80s, I'd love to say Queen's rule. But they don't. Queen's lead. Being a queen means you are worthy to be a leader of people. The guests on our show do exactly that. They are leading the way in their businesses, families, and communities. And they're taking their rightful place in the spotlight, leading and inspiring the developing queens in all of us. Welcome to the Queen's Lead Podcast. Now here's your host, Amy Singleton, the queen of realness, leading conversations about business, life, and the real shit you want to know. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of the Queen's Lead Podcast. Today, we have some juicy, juicy treat for you. Straight from the UK, Carla Crivaro. Uh, She is a sex, love, and relationship coach. And the very top of her website says, delicious sex. So welcome, Carla. I am so excited to talk to you about having delicious sex. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you for having me, Amy. Yeah, the reason when I was coming up trying to think of something, you know, like the, the type of tagline that I was going to use, I was like, what adjective do you use before sex? And um, it took some took a while and a lot of thinking. And I thought, delicious sounds good because, you know, it's about finding your own flavor, um, flavor that works for you. And so that's the reason that I came up with the word delicious sex. Oh, I love that. I love that delicious sex. So, so tell us uh, what brought you to this unique uh, space? I'm sure there's a beautiful, delicious story there. Yeah. So um, I'll do the very short version. So I was, I had chronic anxiety as um, a mother, um, really struggling to look after myself, like my, my own emotional well-being, and ended up falling into sort of like my own self-development journey. And along the way, um, as I was starting to be aware of my own past and how my past affected my present, um, there was the opportunity to really, rather than just sort of moving into survival and feeling like I'm able to cope with things, like how can I give myself more? Like how can I really thrive in life? And one of the areas that I looked at was um, my sex life with my husband. It was like, I didn't really have any issues in the sense of like I you know I I could get orgasms and there was pleasure there but it was like just felt like there could be something more like there was something missing like a sense of aliveness a sense of connection and so I decided to train to be a sex love and relationship coach the sex part was for myself and then the coaching I thought you know and I'll just coach anxious mothers who are you know have experience who are experiencing what I used to experience and and support them in that way and then it was doing that training that completely opened my eyes to how important our relationship to our sexuality is so it's like the foundation of who we are as human beings and how we relate to ourselves but also other people And um, what I came to learn about myself um, is that I had been very, very shut down in my 20s. So as I started my training, I suggested to my um, husband that we go non-monogamous to have the opportunity to really explore, um, yeah, what what is out there sexually. So I spent 18 months exploring non-monogamy, going to play parties, 
Um, and yeah, really getting to understand myself as a sexual level and relating to other sexual beings as well, not just my husband. Um, since then, um, my journey is that my husband and I are no longer married, but what we have decided to do is live together as parents for our children. And we um, have our own relationships um, outside of, of that partnership. So my husband, well, he's not my husband anymore, my, my ex-husband, my co-parenting partner, let's say, and yeah. I are, um, have our own monogamous relationships and then support each other as parents living together. Because our children are quite young. They're only nine and six. So having wow. that stability, we feel, is really important. And for the most part, um, we get on really well. Obviously, I say for the most part because we're human beings and, you know, there's right. always going to be an element of disagreement and tension when we're stressed. So, yeah. Wow. Well, that's so interesting because that is actually something that my ex-husband and I considered back in, oh my gosh, 2010, 2000, no, yeah, 2010, when we divorced, we considered all the things, open relationship, we considered um, living together, but, but stay, you know, and staying married, but having open relationship, living together, but divorcing for the kids, because our kids were very young. Luckily, now they're, they're much older, and, and we decided to part ways fully. Uh, but that's very interesting that you've been able to make that work um, in your relationship and to stay in the same household. That's that's not uh, the choice that most people uh, are able to make. And I think part of that reason was because there wasn't really any problem as such with our relationship. Um, what we both came to realize was, as we did our own self-development, that what was generally keeping us together was our attachment wounds, so our own attachment trauma. And so once we began to heal that, it's like, actually, you know, what is keeping us together? Like, that, <laughs> you know, yeah. yes, we get on, we're able to communicate reasonably well. Um, you know, we are able, we understand each other at a really deep level with, you know, um, we've lived together uh, for, yeah, about 15, 16 years. So, you know, there's a lot of, he probably knows me better than anybody, you know, definitely more than my own parents. Um, so yeah, in a way it just sort of like made sense, you know, we've tended to think a little bit outside of the box with a lot of the decisions that we've made re with regards to parenting, with regards to, you know, obviously exploring non-monogamy. And so, you know, at this moment in time, I mean, you don't know what the future holds, but at this moment in time with the age of the children and with our current situation, that's something that we feel is, um, yeah, that's working for us and for the kids as yeah. well. Oh, okay. Can we pause to honor the fact that she said, that's what's working for us. Okay. If you're watching this, I'm putting the queen leadership crown on already in this, uh, in the video version of this podcast, because Carla just said it, it's what works for us. And I think especially, I don't know how it is in the UK where you are, uh, she's just Northwest of England and I am in Oklahoma city in the Bible belt of the United States and doing things differently is really hard. Is it, was mm -hmm. it difficult to make that decision and what kind of, what kind of response do you get from people, um, there in your culture or is it just like um, totally fine with everybody? Um, well, I think the people that know us that knew that we were non-monogamous, Mm -hmm. um, and then moved into sort of like a co-parenting partnership. I think for them, the initial shock was the non-monogamy that they had to deal with, especially for our parents. Um, yeah. I'll bet. <laughs> so, 
So that was so that was the biggest thing for people to deal with initially. So then moving into a co-parenting partnership, I think a lot of people saw the or do see the maturity in that, the fact that we're able to get on with each other. Just because I think so many people, when they break up, they have, you know, have so many unmet needs that they've not been able to address with each other. They've not known how to communicate them with each other. That what ends up happening is there is so much resentment that they begin to really dislike the other person because that person is not seeing who I am and they feel so unseen in relationship that that resentment carries through and creates this um yeah, almost hate, you know, a lot of people talk about their exes with a lot of hate. And I think that's, you know, such a shame that people end up being in that situation. Um, With regards to people who don't know us, when I explain that, I think they're curious more than anything. And also, you know, they can see yeah, it does make sense because also, you know, especially if you look at the moment, at least in the UK, that there is, they're calling it a cost of living crisis. You know, single parent families are really struggling. So if you can yeah. keep those finances together, you know, because just thinking about like having two separate houses, you know, our boys having a bed each in a separate house, the separate bills, yeah. you know, it's, it's buying a new vacuum everything. cleaning. Yeah, Literally, yeah, but like the small- yeah, it adds up. Big time, yeah, for sure. Especially in today's economy, which is a global problem, not just there or here, for sure. Yeah, so that, that's solving a problem, and it's what's working for you, and that's what's so beautiful about it. Is like we don't know your story, we don't know anybody's story, and so the snap judgments that people might make, um, maybe they could reconsider that when they consider, you know, the whole story. Yeah, and I think a lot of people think, well, just because you get on, can you not like try and make it work? Yeah. You know, so and I think my parents tend to be more on that side. You know, they're the sort of people who are like, you know, you get you stay married forever and make it work. You know, even if you speak to each other really disrespectfully, it's like, well, we stay together, you know. <laughs> like my God, we made that commitment and we're gonna yeah. see it all the way through. I I mean, I would just say on the last episode we we recorded of this podcast, like being able to turn and make another decision and go a different way is something that I think is getting more accepted in, in our culture and in our lives than it used to be. Uh, but I'm so glad you were able to to make that choice. Be like, actually, no, this is not working anymore. <laughs> and we're better people individually because of it, right? Yeah, exactly. And it just means as well that I think because of the journey that I've had is being quite unusual. A lot of people feel that they can come to me with their own stories and their own issues and feel less judgment, you know, and, you know, if people want or desire something that's a little bit out of the ordinary, they know that I'm not going to judge them for it. You know, it just helps people to sort of relax in that space. Um, Yeah. Cause I can't remember was it before we started recording or after that you, when you explained about your own personal journey, it's like that the moment that I share something about myself, somebody else feels like, Oh, I can share with this person because you know, they're open-minded and I feel safe with them. Yeah. You've breaking down all those barriers for them to feel, you know, uh, 
less uh, less with the spotlight just on them. Like, oh, okay, this is community. That's why I feel such a huge responsibility to stand up and talk about my history of depression, my history of of alcoholism, my addiction of you know being suicidal. All of these things. When we raise our hands and say, "Me too," and this is what that looks like, and here's what you you know, it gives others that permission that they need so badly to to share and and learn and grow in their own situation when they can see themselves in you. So thank you for, for sharing that with our audience. I'm, um, I want people to have a better sex life. I really do. Uh, it's so important. I don't think that we give enough credit to sex in the ways that it should be credited. (laughs) So talk to us a little bit about that and about your therapy with that. What do you find to be some of the biggest problems people are experiencing? So um, before I talk about the biggest problems, I'd just like to say, because this is something that we said as well before recording. So like I'm on Instagram, but my content is frequently removed or goes against community standards. And and I think this is the issue that we have as as society at large. The fact that sex is seen as so taboo, the fact that sex is seen as something that we don't talk about, hidden under the carpet. What that means is that a lot of people particularly, you know, clients that come to me, they don't have anywhere to go. Um, You know, they might go to their um, doctor, their local doctor, um, GP in in the UK, I think you call them physicians in in the US, Um, you know, and they're normally unequipped to be able to support people. Yeah. Quite often they have their own shame around their own sexuality, you know, even like, relationship counsellors and relationship therapists you know when people talk and step into the realm of talking about sexuality unless you've done your done your own inner work around your own sexuality holding space for things that come up for other people can be really confronting um you know having people's issues you know mirrored back to you so I would say that like underlying all of the sexual issues that people experience is the shame element you know because women want to be sexy and want to be sexual but we have been told that by society at large and by religion that we are not that um, which is just not true you know there's so much um, research out there that shows that um, when you take into account the fact that women's desire is slightly different to men so do you know what I mean when I say spontaneous desire and responsive desire uh, go ahead and define it just in case. Okay. Just in case the listeners so, don't. So spontaneous desire is like, you know, you be walking down the road, you see somebody attractive and you can feel like the turn on and the sexual energy. And responsive desire is, you know, somebody makes a move on you and starts to caress your face, puts a hand between your thighs. And then once somebody has started to, to make a move on you, you're responding to that. So that's responsive desire. Okay. So once, so once you account for um, cultural differences, um, gender differences, and how women um, uh, reply to certain questionnaires and all of these different things, men have, generally speaking, a higher spontaneous desire. Um, women tend to have more responsive desire. But when you actually, you know, take it into account and look at it side by side, women actually have more desire than men for sex. 
Wow. And if you look at the statistics for like non-monogamy, for example, two thirds of relationships are opened up by women. So, you know, the need and the desire for women specifically to want to go and explore their sexuality is really, really um, high. And so because women don't have access to this information, because we're constantly told that we're the ones in the relationship that want less sex, if as a woman you desire to have more sex and your libido is low and you think that, you know, I would like to have more, there's a lot of shame that prevents you from going to get that support. And again, the, th- the thing is with men is because men have been conditioned to, you know, be the, the, the virile person, the person that's extremely sexual, um, you know, men. The pursuer. Supposed- yeah, the one that's the supposed to want- Yeah, yes. The one that's supposed to want the notches on the bedpost, a lot of men actually don't identify with that. And I would say all men don't. And if they have latched onto that, that is just because they want to belong to the pack, the men in the group, and they want to be respected. What a lot of men really, really desire is an intimate connection with a woman. Like, so I've had, um, you know, the men that have come to me who have not had sex for a long time in their relationships and even though, yes, they would like to have sex, their initial first goal and desire is just to be able to sit on the sofa and have a cuddle with their partner because the intimacy has, you know, become so disconnected that, you know, they just really crave that physical touch and it doesn't need to necessarily be sex, but it can just be, you know, cuddling on the sofa while watching a movie and, you know, stroking your partner's hair, even something as like intimate as that. And so, and, and, you know, a lot of men don't like to admit that they have shame around the fact that maybe they don't want sex as much as they, you know, in inverted commas should. Um, So it's, it's it's I suppose what a lot of the work that I do is is just sort of like bringing people back to the authentic desires what it is that they want and how can they you know go for that without having too much of effect on on you know the conditioning that's that's coming from them you know so stepping into what's my authentic sexual expression and being true to that yeah and I think the training starts so young <laughs> for for me it did like I mean, that that conditioned response to uh, when I was a teenager, it was true love waits. We put rings on it like we were not going to have sex. We we're not going to think about sex. We were not going to talk about that dirty thing. I didn't know what it even really was. I don't think until maybe I was married. I don't even know. But but yeah, I mean, there's so much wrapped up in our heads from what we were taught as children um, to where we are now. So. How do how do we go from there to there? Um, how do we go from there to there with the society or, or like as an individual? Uh, I, as an individual, I think that society has a long way to go. And I think that societal change starts with an individual change. Right. So if we can get our heads wrapped around how we can be better at this, um, then maybe society will eventually change. Yeah, so for me, it's exploring like our individual relationship to our bodies, um, mm. being able to have a positive relationship to our genitals as well. So, you know, both men and women have an un- unhealthy relationship to their genitals. So men t- that I work with tend to have like, because um, I don't want to generalize with every man. Um, so it's easy if I just talk about the men that that I work with, but a lot of the men that I work with tend to have a relationship with their genitals that seems to be like almost 
a taking relationship. So what can their penis give them? It can give them an ejaculation. It can give them an orgasm. You know, it can give them that connection to another woman. Um, You know, so there's an element of taking from that part of their body. And then for a lot of women who have never even looked at themselves in the mirror, there's a lot of embarrassment, you know, and because, you know, we, it's, we don't really see other women's vulvas. Like, so what, you know, when men go into the showers, they might get a glimpse of another man's penis and testicles, and they tend to have more of an idea of what they look like. But as women, you don't like what, you know, a question that I get um, reasonably frequently for women that have explored themselves internally is like, how do I know it feels normal? You know? Um, Yeah. And also, you know, when um, I invite women to do mirror work, so looking at their own vulva, um, just being aware of the emotions that come up for them as they are looking at themselves. And I also share um, a library, which has got so many different shapes and colors of vulvas, just so that people can see, you know, so that women can see the variety that is out there and just be able to understand that there is normal, that there's nothing unusual. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, once you've built that relationship to that part of your body where there's so much shame and so much, much disconnection, that then really helps you to get more in tune with, you know, your sexuality. So, you know, what is it that I want um, from sex? What is it that I want to experience? So, you know, what type of pleasure would I like to experience? What type of connection? Um, you know, because sex can take us off in lots of different directions, if we are curious and playful, you know, our attitudes to sex can be that we tend to then remove the fo- focus and goal of things like um, orgasm or and ejaculation. And then we're able to maneuver towards playfulness and curiosity. And that is where we tend to build more connection with the person that we're with. When we're able to remove any specific goals about what sex should look like and how we can be really playful and fun. And, you know, how can I really learn about this other person and their body and remove any idea of the direction it it, it should go in? Because for a lot of heterosexual couples, you know, there tends to be this sort of like we have a bit of a kiss and a cuddle. Um, any like digital sex or oral sex tends to be considered as foreplay and then the main event is considered to be intercourse you know at some point the woman might be fortunate enough to have an orgasm because there is the orgasm gap of like depending on the on the study between 30 to 60 percent um of women who have orgasms compared to men which is between 80 and 90 percent so it depends on the study um, and then, you know, the sex finishes with the man's ejaculation. So that tends to be the, you know, the, the, the linear trajectory for most people's sex life. And it's like, how can we shake it up and do things differently? And how can we experience pleasure and be sexual and not even touch each other's genitals, you know? So getting really curious about what sex can look like um, and really allowing ourselves to explore each other's bodies with different intentions. Yeah. Oh my gosh. I love that. Um, it's not about the end goal, not necessarily, right? Or the end goal that we think should be the end, end goal, right? Uh, talk to me a little bit about sex education. I, I mean, like where, obviously as adults, we're able now to access people like you who can give us an education, but what do you feel like may need to change in, in education? And where does that age education need to come from? 
Should it come from the school? Should it come from the parent? You know, whose responsibility is that in your, in your mind? And, and how can we educate our kids and our youth and people in general without them just resorting to porn, which is not sex. <laughs> no, and this is exactly what I was going to sort of like bring to attention. So um, one in nine children by the age of like 10 or something like that, mm-hmm. more or less that's a t- statistic, have seen porn. So, you know, that's really young. And if you think about children now that have their own mobile phones, the chances are they have seen porn or if they've got their own devices. Yeah, because, you know, they get shared in um, groups, in um, messaging groups, they get shared um, in, in lots of different ways. And so what you've got to think is if the education comes from porn, that's where my child is learning about it. Now, removing devices or constantly monitoring another human being, because I think sometimes we forget that children are human beings. Right. Um, what that can do is that can give them a sense of the fact that they themselves are not to be trusted. The, you know, it means that we are creating a disconnection from our own children. If instead what we can do is we can be really honest and open and vulnerable and have an uncomfortable conversation with our own children around sex and pleasure, relationships, communication. If we can show them a healthy way to explore and experience all of these and making them aware of not right now, you know, so if we're having this conversation with with like a 10 or 11 year old, You know, we're being very um, mindful of saying not right now. This is for, you know, when you're older, but without scaring them about infections and and pregnancy, you know, giving them that sense of responsibility because you care for another human being and their health and their welfare. You know, how can I care for somebody else and how can I care for myself? And having that respect for your own body and having that respect for the people's body comes from having these open communications and being able to talk openly and honestly. Because if as a child, you can have these conversations with your parent, which anyway will be uncomfortable. It means that you're able to have those uncomfortable conversations with a partner and talk about things like condoms because, you know, that discomfort, you've already learned to work through it by having the conversation with your parents. So anyway, moving, going back to, to the issue of porn, if you're able to sit down with your child and have these open conversations and talk to them about porn as well, what that means is that, you know, when they do, because it's not a case of if, it's when they do when. get exposed to it, they are already literate in understanding that porn is not real. It's, you know, marketed, encouraging them to be really aware, you know, like, A lot of us are encouraged to, when we watch the news or a particular news program, it's like, who's making the news? Who's invested in it? What? How do they benefit from it? You know, it's media literacy. So it's also having porn literacy. And if there are people listening that are parents, a really great resource is um, Sex Positive Families, which can be found on Instagram. And then they have a whole load of resources of like YouTube videos, to watch as parents or to watch with your children or just for children 
and a whole oh. um, range of books on how to have these conversations with children at, you know, age appropriate, um, age appropriate conversations. So what's the name of know, that resource again? Sex positive families, sex positive families. I love that. See, it wasn't until I watched a, um, I watched a special on a TV several years ago, Lucy Liu was the host. And I think it was like called real life or this is life. I think it's called this is life. And they did an entire special on porn. Um, and it was that catalyst that, and, and actually a friend of my husband's was having, um, a porn addiction. Yeah. He had a masturbation addiction and could not climax with a human partner. And, um, I've, also been with men that, that had experienced that. And, and it's a real, real problem. Uh, and so it was then that we started having conversations with our boys who are now 15 and 19. Uh, and my husband's grown daughters that were still in the home, uh, the one grown daughter that was still in the home at the times telling them, look, you're going to see this. This is not real. This is what that is. And this is what a real sexual relationship looks like, you know, talking about, you know, consent and, and protection and, and, and the heart connection of it yeah. all. And, and really what that means and the, in all of those conversations and telling them the risk that they're at to, to, uh, to develop that addiction and actually inhibit their own sexual pleasure, you know, by desensitizing themselves to that next biggest thing that it takes to, to get them off. Essentially. I mean, it's a serious conversation that can impact our kids in their teens and twenties and thirties and on into their life. So I feel like we can't not have those difficult conversations. We can't not say things to our kids. Like people do drugs because they feel amazing and people go to porn, you know, for this reason. And this is what might happen if you do too. So just to be aware of that, do you think it's and important I, to share that? Yeah. And, and just, you know, talking about porn, like if you think about it, humans have in some shape or form always self-pleasured to, to porn because, you know, okay, the thing is now, you know, you've got like the, the videos, the, the short videos that are easily accessible on the mobile phone. I'm 43. And I know that, yeah, <laughs> so, <laughs> I know that, you know, that the, the, the men who are my age, when they were like late teens, they had magazines that they would self-pleasure and look at. And then, you know, when they could get to the top shelf and get the videos in the video store, they would they would watch those in self-pleasure. And, you know, people think that that it's it's like only a recent thing that porn has been around. But porn in some shape or form has been there a long, long time. Um, what's different and what's changed is, is how we relate to that. So. Because the way that a lot of men are masturbating to porn is different to the way that they masturbated to it when they were like to, like it 20 years ago. Because what a lot of men are doing is they're like sat at a computer screen or they're sat up in bed holding their phone and they're going for the most interesting parts of the of, of, of the scenes of the actual videos or films. Or sometimes they're not even watching full videos, you know, because I've taken a look at Pornhub myself just to understand, you know, what men are watching yeah and it's literally you know you can scroll through click on something and watch the most interesting part in, in just a, a few minutes the, the issue is with that is you know um and men who i'm supporting coming off porn it's about okay rather than just going for the main bit the dopamine hit 
taking yourself on a journey. So watching a full video. So you, you know, because that takes your body on the similar journey that you that you would experience if you were as a human being. So it's teaching your body to relate to sex and sexuality and sexual energy as though another human being was there. So what do I mean by that? If you're watching a video where, you know, there's people interacting and flirting, you can feel the chemistry and the sexual energy building, and then they might start kissing and then things, you know, the sexual energy ramps up. As you're following that journey with the video that then reaches climax and then there's like this down part to it, you know, where um, the couple or, you know, if there's more than one person, you know, they're sort of, you know, in that moment of bliss and relaxing, your body is able to follow that trajectory as well. And it, mm-hmm. and you're taken on that journey. The big problem is that a lot of people are just going for that immediate dopamine hit. And also the position as well. So, you know, they're not even aware of like their own bodies. So, you know, another thing that I suggest with men wanting to come off porn is, you know, t- as they pleasure themselves to touch their own body, take a moment away from the actual porn and then just feel into themselves, into their own bodies, feeling the sensations and and the pleasure that they experience in their own body, because that will then train them that when they come back to their partner or, you know, a partner, that they're then able to be present with the sensations rather than requiring the visuals to get them turned on. They're able to connect more to the sensations. And then also, you know, that death grip that a lot of men have when they're watching porn because they are so focused on the visuals and disconnected to their own touch. It's like, how can I soften my grip and how can I slow everything down? So interspersing, you know, the porn watching with a different way of holding and touching themselves so that they're teaching their bodies a new way of pleasure that is more in line with what they would experience when they are with a partner. Yeah. Well, good luck getting them to do that on their own. I think they're going to need a coach for that. <laughs> but it's so heartbreaking to me that 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 men and, and I'm sure women become addicted to this thing with that immediate dopamine hit because then it requires something larger. And it's like drugs, yeah. right? Then it requires a larger dose or something more wild or something more unatta- seemingly unattainable for them. And then when they come back to a human partner, it's not even possible for them to, to get even close to having an intimate experience at that point. Right. Yeah. Because they've become so disconnected to their own bodies and to being completely present. They're relying totally on the visuals and requiring visual stimulation. And, you know, one of the things that I tend to work with, with men and women, um, even if, you know, porn isn't necessarily a thing is, returning to the sensations in the body, you know, rather than trying to bring up a fantasy into your mind to get you to orgasm, how can you really step into the pleasure that you're experiencing and allow that to take you into heightened states of pleasure and potentially an orgasm? And it's absolutely possible to do that. Um, It just requires patience. It just requires really almost like mindfulness, you know, like a type of meditation in how you touch yourself. Um, And initially when people start doing that, you can feel quite broken because it's like, this is what I want to achieve and I'm not able to do it. And there can be a lot of discomfort around not being able to do that. But yeah, it's, it's being present with it, knowing that, you know, quite often it takes like 21 days or more 
to actually change something about ourselves. So, you know, change a habit, change the way that we do things. Yeah. What do you think is the biggest lie that we've been told about sex? Mm, the biggest lie? Um, I think the fact that we have been told that sex is shameful and I think the reason that that lie has been told is because when we tap into our own authentic sexual expression, the confidence that gives you in your own body, your ability to move in your own decisions gives you this sense of empowerment that is really difficult to find anywhere else. Because mm. some of the most confident people that I know, and I mean genuine confidence, mm. um, that those are the people that are able to sit with the discomfort because you know confident isn't like being able to do something confident is being able to be uncomfortable about doing something and doing it anyway and oh, so yeah if there it is <laughs> there's the crown it's going on again that's one of my favorite statements do it anyway you're you're going to have to do it scared because you're not going to not be scared people think i'm fearless i'm not i'm terrified all the time you just have to do it right yeah exactly that so and you know before you do something out of your comfort zone the discomfort that you experience in your own body which you know manifests itself in all these crazy thoughts that you have you know if you can sit with that discomfort um and you can sit with that discomfort about who you are as a sexual person knowing that you might be receiving judgment from other people if you're able to be that and stay in your own truth, that in itself gives you this sense of feeling of, yeah, empowerment and knowing and trusting in yourself and your own abilities and your decisions. Um, so I would say, yeah, the biggest side that we've been told is that sex is shameful and, yeah, that we're bad people. In fact, I think it's completely different. Yeah. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. Oh my gosh. I can't believe this time has literally flown by. Time flies when you're having fun. I wish we could stay on another hour, um, but we're coming toward the end of our time together. So talk to this audience and, and this audience is full of, of women between the ages of probably 20 to 65 or even more. Um, what is something that everybody can do today that will help them have a better sexual experience, whether they are single, committed, non-monogamous, whatever their life situation. Is there something that everybody needs to be doing or could be doing to make, to make our sex lives better? Self-pleasure, because once you know your own body intimately, um, I'm, I'm using the word self-pleasure rather than masturbation because it's about bringing self-love. So not just touching your genitals, but touching all of your body. So if you're able to bring pleasure to all different parts of your body, love your own body, you know, touch it as though, you know, it's somebody that absolutely adores you is touching it, which is yourself. So show yourself that same adoration. And once you give yourself full permission to be in your pleasure, knowing that you're worthy of that pleasure, then the way that you interact with anybody else, whether that's sexually or just, you know, how you will allow yourself to be treated. It's like, if I'm showing myself that much love and pleasure, am I going to let somebody, you know? Yeah, exactly. Am I going to right now? We're going to do a self-love <laughs> hug right here. It's a yoga time. All right. Self-love hug, everybody. Yeah. Yeah. That's so good. I, I mean, I constantly talk to people about 
loving yourself mentally, speaking out loud, you know, affirmations about yourself, talking to your former versions of yourself for your mental health. But it never occurred to me to, to show that to yourself physically, you know, and caring for yourself, whether it's your, your hair or your face or your body, but touching and loving on yourself, you know, that's not something that most of us are very comfortable with. Yeah, exactly that. So, you know, next time you're applying lotion, rather than just doing it quickly, you know, how can I apply the lotion in a loving, sensual way to myself? And how can I dedicate some time to really love on my body and allow myself to experience pleasure or all of my body, you know, including my genitals? Like, how can I show myself that love and that care? Because once I've taught my body that that's what it feels like, then that's what I'm going to expect from everybody else as well. Mm. Oh man, that's so good. Thank you. I feel like clapping. That's so good, Carla. Thank you so much for sharing that. So if you're out there listening and maybe you're struggling in your sex life, maybe you have a a ton of shame as it relates to self-pleasure or even having sex with your husband, I mean, or your boyfriend, it's okay. There are people out there that you can talk to. It ain't got to be your mama. (laughs) It ain't got to be your therapist. It can't be your doctor because they're not sexually healthy either. So don't go there. Let them do your lab work and your x-rays and come to Carla to talk through the actual sex problems. And bonus for the U.S. people, we get to hear her beautiful accent and her voice, (laughs) which, you know, we're all completely obsessed with in the United States. So Carla, where can the audience go and find you and connect if they need sex therapy, love and relationship therapy, you're the go-to gal. So tell us how to find you and connect with you. Thank you. So I do have an Instagram account, which is the sexuality, the dot sexuality dot um, sanctuary. The only problem is meta don't really like my content. So all the juicy content is on my website. Um, so that's um, www.carlacrivaro.com. So, and then I have like articles, videos, and yeah, podcast appearances that you can get to listen to me talk and educate people around all sorts of elements of sex from erectile dysfunction to anal play to blowjobs and everything in between. I love it. Where else are you guys going to hear anal plays, blowjobs, butt play? Come on over to the Queen's Lead podcast. We'll give it to you straight. I'm the real Amy Singleton. We ain't lying. We all got butts. I saw a man at the farmer's market this weekend that had a hat on that said, show me that butthole. So you know what? It's all right. We all have them. You can talk about your butthole. Sometimes it feels good. Ain't even gonna lie. Okay. So get with Carla. If you need help to have a better sex life, trust me, I have had a bad sex life and I have had a great sex life and you want the great side of things. So thank you, Carla, for being my guest. And thank you for being a queen that leads. Everybody go over and connect with Carla at carlacrivaro.com. The Queen's Lead podcast is recorded worldwide and produced by the kick-ass media team at the Height Digital home base in Nicaragua. Until our next episode, stay real queens and go lead. Remember to tap that follow and leave your review. For freebies and more real, inspiring content you love, go to amysingleton.net and connect with Amy on our socials at The Real Amy Singleton. One more thing. This is the legal language, what my lawyer wrote and what I need to read to you. This podcast is presented for educational and entertainment purposes only. I am Amy Singleton and I'm just your friend. Although I may speak to many on this show, I am not a psychotherapist, a business coach, a doctor, a CPA, a lawyer, or probably anyone who should be giving you professional advice. This podcast is not a substitute for a relationship with your doctor, coach, or any other licensed professional. Got it? Good.
Now go be a queen and follow me at The Real Amy Singleton.